Jim Marshall is a clinical psychotherapist from Saginaw, Michigan. He's also a co-founder and the chair of the 911 Wellness Foundation, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping 911 dispatchers, or telecommunicators as they're known professionally, across the United States. 911 dispatchers generally talk with people who are in the midst of their worst moments in life, and that can cause them all sorts of stress-related illnesses. But fortunately, Jim and his organization teach dispatchers how to take care of their mental health, and they're helping to guide advances in the industry. I talk with him about all of these issues, as well as what motivates him to serve this group of hidden caregivers. I'm Josh Morgan. My conversation with Jim is coming up next on The Plural of You, the podcast about people helping people. I got interested in this topic after I read a few stories from dispatchers about the job. And I've lost the original source for what inspired me to look up the 911 Wellness Foundation. But from what I remember, a typical shift for a dispatcher might go something like this. So say a call comes in from a frantic woman. She whispers that her ex-husband has forced his way into her apartment, and she's hiding in a closet. She's calling for police assistance, and the dispatcher is doing her best to keep her calm. But suddenly, there's a male voice, and then the woman screams, and the call disconnects. Another call comes in, unrelated to the previous woman, and that's it. Life goes on. The dispatcher may never find out what happened to the woman, and it'll be only one of several incidents that she or he will hear about during the same shift. And that's the nature of the job. Helping people through their most vulnerable moments, often without closure for the dispatcher. One veteran in the field put it this way, quote, You definitely have to want to do it. It's not like being a secretary and typing in a computer. Unquote. There's a lot of emotional labor required to be a 911 dispatcher. I think it's fair to argue that they have one of the most emotionally complex jobs imaginable. So I'm glad to know that people like Jim are doing what they can to ease the burden. Jim was in the middle of a week-long series of training sessions for compassion fatigue and emotional resilience when we talked. But I was able to catch him one evening in a hotel room. Here's Jim Marshall, co-founder and chair of the 911 Wellness Foundation. If you wouldn't mind, just tell me a little bit about the 911 Wellness Foundation. What, what kinds of services do you provide? So the 911 Wellness Foundation was started as a grassroots effort in 2010. It was the joining of myself as a mental health professional who was embedded in 911 as a trainer. And as I built relationships in the industry and went to conferences and we were Actually, in, at the NINA conference in 2011, it was the NINA Development Conference, and I was moderating sessions uh, with the 911 family, members of the industry, stakeholders, including vendors, 911 directors, folks from the government, etc. We were asking and uh, engaging in the question, what impact does 911 stress have on the telecommunicator? What do we know about that stress and how does it affect their families? And what do we need to do about these things? Also, looking at advances in 911 technology, which will include next generation 911, which we can go into later. But so as we had these conversations, we realized there were a number of people in the industry who were very concerned about creating an organization that was exclusively dedicated to asking what impact does doing 911 have on the person of the telecommunicator and on the rest of the 911 family. We knew, and I knew this as a, as a clinician specializing in trauma that there has to be an increased risk of post-traumatic stress disorder, compassion fatigue, 
struggles with mental health, relationships. Uh, and so we, we recognize that we have a number of good organizations in the 911 industry. We didn't have one agency in particular that was concerned exclusively about the well-being of the telecommunicator. The 911 Wellness Foundation came together as a joining of psychological mental health expertise with 911 uh, subject matter experts with the idea that if we marry these two disciplines, we can protect the well-being of the telecommunicator as we advance through the, the, the rest of this decade and subsequent decades so they can help take care of the public uh, who they serve every day at their own risk. Now, how did you get involved in this field? Well, I was in the classroom uh, training telecommunicators in stress resilience. My sister is a telecommunicator. She brought me into the field. I had my first sit-along in the 80s uh, when I was in my psych training. I ended up as a trauma therapist, and over the years, I began to work more and more with folks with severe trauma and working with folks who had relationship issues. My sister asked me to develop training in 911 stress resilience, borrowing from my work with trauma. I did that. I launched a class in the industry. It was extremely well received. And I realized these are tremendously valuable people who are at risk. As I was in the classroom with them between 2005 and 2010, I realized, you know what, if all I do is train them to manage stress, that's not addressing the issue of what research needs to be developed, what other education needs to be offered to the public, to the government, to their leaders about their risks. And we need to establish policy. We need to reach out to make sure they get the intervention they need. And that's when I realized we had to have an organization to help do this. So I moved from not just training 911 to, but to uh, leading the Wellness Foundation. And we established in 2011 as a nonprofit uh, and we're a governing board operated organization. Was your major in college clinical psychology or something similar to that? Like, what was your initial interest? as a career starting out? My bachelor's was in psychology. I expected that I would become a clinician. I worked in policy and advocacy for a few years before going back to graduate school. I was with Head Start in early childhood special ed and early childhood advocacy for kids with disabilities. I moved into a master's program in clinical psych, clinical psychology at Wheaton College in Illinois. From there, began clinical practice back in 1987 in uh, northern Michigan. On the inpatient side, the first couple years, I was doing all the psychological evaluations to help psychiatrists determine what diagnoses were were wreaking havoc for people. So is this schizophrenia, is a bipolar disorder, or is an organic disorder like a dementia? Uh, So I was doing that kind of work inpatient, doing the evaluations. In that process, I learned a lot from patients about the fact that there's traumatic stress activating a lot of these mental illnesses. And then when I went into outpatient work beyond working with children, as my kids got a little older, I said, okay, enough. I need to spend all my, my love for children at home, not clinically. As I continued to work, more and more people with traumatic stress came to me because of my work on the inpatient side. I think they knew about my work there. And so word of mouth spread that I could help people with traumatic stress. And then I began to specialize in that, get additional training. And that's how it took off. Over the years, then my other area specialty developed as, as I was a married guy with more than 10 years of life experience there uh, and <laughs> more clients needing marital therapy. I focused on helping couples where trauma was a part of their relationships 
and did that clinically and then developed a marriage retreat process doing intensive marital retreat uh, with couples. And so those are the things I did, trauma and couples. So when you became exposed to your sister's occupation, other 911 dispatchers and such, what did you see in common with your other specialties? So what I recognized is as my sister and I talked and she was sharing her experiences with calls, they, she was dealing with people as our, all of her colleagues at their worst moments of life. So was I. Now, they were receiving it hot and fresh, if you will. In other words, no warning in through the headset comes screaming of a mother whose child is not breathing. So you're dealing with a woman who's being traumatized, who's trying to help save the life of her child, and the telecommunicator is trying to administer through the mother's own hands CPR with that child, or in other situations working with a suicidal caller, right? Well, as my sister's sharing those things, I'm realizing, my gosh, we're working with the same groups of people. When they are helped by 911, they, they end up in the mental health unit or they end up being referred for counseling. And they end up coming to me either when they're still in crisis in the mental health unit or they come to an outpatient practice where I see them. So we realize we're both responders to those in psychological crisis. That was the recognition of the, the commonality. And therefore, as caregivers, we were at risk of vicarious traumatization, both of us. And this was the thing that we realized not only were we blood relatives, we had this in common as well. You know, I'm realizing in speaking with you that I never thought about 911 dispatchers. And I hope it's okay if I use that term. Yeah, sure. Okay. I never thought of them as caregivers, but that makes total sense. Well, and in fact, in the first article I, I wrote for a magazine in the 911 industry, I coined a term ECG, extraordinary caregiver. Now, it sounds like a phony pat on the back, but the way I define extraordinary caregivers is those who are exposed to abnormally heavy doses of traumatic human suffering on a frequent and unpredictable basis and are in a, re a responsible role of giving care. So that is out of the ordinary, which is extraordinary. So they're extraordinary caregivers. Yeah, absolutely. They're caregivers. And think about this. When police, emergency medical, and fire responders go to the scene, they know what they're going to. They've been warned and given detail by the telecommunicator. Oh, okay. So they have some psychological preparation. It doesn't mean that there's not shocking, difficult things on scene. But who warns the telecommunicator before the mother comes screaming into her headset or his headset? Nobody. Right. That means there's even more intense psychological stimulation in that first moment. There are numerous other stressors that make it uh, difficult, too. There's no closure often. Once the, the field responders arrive on scene and the scene is secure, they don't know what happens ultimately to the suicidal person. They often don't know if the child ends up living or dying. And how do you stop producing stress hormones if you don't experience a sense of closure that the threat to someone's life is resolved? Wow. So how does doing this kind of work carry over into the lives of the dispatchers? We had to answer that from clinical impressions and my sense anecdotally from all those I had talked to, you know, through the years, my relationship with the 911 industry became a family type of relationship extending from my relationship with my sister. Uh, in between uh, hours of our class, when we would take breaks, people would come to me and confide about the struggles they were having. And I knew from what they were describing that in many cases, they were likely struggling with PTSD, with compassion fatigue, which I can explain, 
symptoms of chronic stress, depression, increased rates of obesity. Uh, it wasn't until 2008 when the first study was published by uh, uh, Roberta Troxel, and that one identified that telecommunicators likely struggle with compassion fatigue at a rate of 16.3% of those in any given year if they were tested. That was a preliminary study. So I would need to give you a little breakdown in about 60 seconds of what compassion fatigue is, if you'd like. Sure, please. So imagine an umbrella with two handles. As you grip one handle, you're holding on to traumatic exposure, traumatic stress. In other words, the results within a person of experiencing intense fear, horror, or helplessness when exposed to a situation in which somebody's life was at risk or they're at risk of serious injury. Okay, so that's the, you can say that's the fear factor or the trauma factor. That telecommunicator could experience then maybe struggle with flashbacks, intrusive memories, wanting to avoid relating to anything that reminds them of those events, and also some physiological things like exaggerated startle reflex, hypervigilance. Now, that's one handle of the umbrella of compassion fatigue. And the other one, then, is what we would, what we would consider the burnout. When we talk about burnout, we're talking about mental, emotional, physical exhaustion, struggles with uh, a loss of interest in the job, increased irritability, maybe negativity, cynicism, uh, some depression, not necessarily full-blown clinical depression, but it's that aspect of burnout. So those folks are apt to be seen as having, quote, bad attitudes or, you know, they, they are negative, when in fact, there's a physiological drain of being cumulatively exposed to so much difficulty with calls over a number of months and years. And it's not just the traumatic calls, it's the just the demanding calls that can make the telecommunicator frustrated, annoyed, irritated by demands that are unreasonable. And yet they try to serve everyone in the public with respect that to them it's an emergency, even if to us it doesn't seem necessary. So compassion fatigue is the umbrella with two handles, the fear factor on one side and the burnout on the other. So that's what the first study from Roberta Troxel identified. Then if you want, I'll tell you about the next couple studies and what we know about uh, impacts of 911 stress. Sure. So in 2012, a telecommunicator named Heather Pierce decided to do some more college work, and she needed to do a project. She decided, as part of a public health study, to ask the question, to what extent does PTSD occur in the population of telecommunicators, 911 telecommunicators? She and her advisor found that about 9 to 10% of all telecommunicators acknowledge symptoms consistent with a diagnosis of PTSD using checklists. This is not an official diagnostic process. Well, when this hit the media, this became a national story. It was a headline story throughout the country. USA Today, Good Morning America, it really hit big, which is amazing. The reason it was such a big story is precisely because, Josh, of the response you had. Wow, most folks don't think about the telecommunicator because they're not physically unseen. Well, that's exactly why they have been under-recognized in terms of the intensity of the demand on them psychologically and why they're even more at risk because they aren't receiving the help that they've needed. So now, Michelle Willey, who was the advisor on that study, caught the bug to help 911 like I did. Uh, you begin to realize these are highly valuable people to all of us. Who do we call in our worst moments of life? It's the 911 telecommunicator, and yet who's helping these people? So Michelle Lilly realized as a result of this preliminary study, we'd better find out 
what's really going on. So she conducted not a study of 200 people, not 500, but 808 people to make sure her data were reliable, trustworthy. And what she found is a PTSD rate probable based on response to screening tools among this population with an average of about 12 years of experience. She found that the rate of PTSD suspected was between 17 and 24.6%. Depending on whether you use civilian cutoff scores, equaling 24% or military cutoff scores with the tools that were used. Yeah, that's incredible. You have to realize, Josh, the rate of PTSD in the general public is 3.5%. That's major. Exactly. Furthermore, she found that that among that sample of people, of that 808 telecommunicators, 24% acknowledged symptoms consistent with clinical depression using the Beck Depression Inventory, which is one of the most reliable screening tools in the world. Again, it's just screening tools. But this is profound that the rate would be so high when the rate among the general public is maybe 2%. By the way, these rates for dispatchers are at least as high or higher than for firefighters and police. And that makes sense given what you said earlier about how the dispatchers are the ones that prepare the other responders. That's right. And they worry, part of their stress is worrying about whether their responders will will stay alive or whether we'll, they'll die when they send them on a call. At the end of the day, if you ask any telecommunicator in, in the world, what is the most important thing to you in terms of what you're there for and the fulfillment of your professional identity, and they will tell you that everyone comes home safe. Oh, that's heavy. <laughs> wow. Exactly, which is why their, their risks are high. Now, in all of this, I'm not trying to be a downer and be an alarmist. Well, of course. You know, there's solutions. You, you know, your podcast is about people doing positive things. And, and in sharing this, it's sobering, but there's something we need to do positive for those who do such positive work, meaning the telecommunicators. We need to take care of them as well as they take care of everybody else. And that's what the Wellness Foundation is about. Yeah, I was about to ask. So how does the 911 Wellness Foundation help to address all of these issues? There are four streams of activity for the foundation. The first one is research. We have our, a director of research, Laura Reed in Florida. She's a, a PhD uh, and she's a specialist in research. And so her study is looking at what kind of leadership does it take to help protect the well-being of telecommunicators. And essentially, that is a massive study that's, that's just outstanding, national study on servant leadership. It's borrowing in the work of Robert Greenleaf, who's a servant leadership pioneer. While we do want to conduct, directly conduct more research, we've just been advocates for advancing existing research and encouraging researchers who are young in their field young PhDs, PhD candidates, even those who are mid-career, to choose 911 as a topic for research. So we want to advance research to ask what are the risks and what should we do to help with these risks. The next stream is education. So what we've done is we've worked, and this joins together with our policy initiative, uh, members of the Wellness Foundation were uh, leaders in helping the National Emergency Number Association establish the first standard in the industry for stress management. And the goal there was to establish what training, education, intervention needs to take place for telecommunicators. So we have been active uh, in advancing education uh, and then policy within the industry. We also need to be able to educate the public. 
We need to ed- educate the vendors, the corporate citizens in 911 so they will step up and take their corporate responsibility. But then the fourth stream of activity is intervention. And that means getting the proper treatment and professional support to help 911 telecommunicators heal when they've experienced traumatic stress, struggles with depression, compassion fatigue, etc. You mentioned next generation 911 earlier, and I'm not familiar with what that is. Would you mind explaining that? Right. So next generation 911 is basically a, a shift from standard 911 based on use of, of phone lines, telephony, and regular uh, radio to a internet protocol-based communication process where everything's running through internet, which allows for much richer data to flow to and from communication centers throughout the country, not only texting and and phone, but also real-time video and other media, including photographs and, and data, health data from sensors. Let's bring this down to you and me. Let's say that I'm a telecommunicator and you're a person out there and you're struggling with suicide, it's possible that you may want to see a real human being rather than just talk to them. So you FaceTime me as a telecommunicator, and I can see your image on on my screen as I'm talking to you. That may be helpful for the person struggling with suicide or the mother who needs help with administering CPR and doesn't know how to do it. If she has the assistance of somebody else in her house, maybe the telecommunicator can see how she's doing it properly or improperly and can redirect her and do more effective CPR with real-time video, right? Right, right. But also the opportunity for telecommunicators to see people with real-time video can allow them to be able to locate where the person is. Maybe they can shift their phone around so they can see landmarks. If they're outside and they had a car accident and they're panicking, they don't know where they're at. The dispatcher can see the lay of the house in case there's danger in that house, they suspect that somebody's there. Or if they're injured and they can't move, so they can instruct first responders on how to get there. There are a lot of ways in which real-time video can be very helpful. Cop cameras. So, you know, cameras on policemen, body cameras, car cameras. Telecommunicators will be able to see the scene better to assist other responders. Make sense? Nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to emphasize that NG911 holds tremendous promise for increasing the life-saving capacity and ability of all of our responders, including the telecommunicators, the very first responder. And we do not want to be alarmist about the increased risks stress-wise that it may pose to telecommunicators. While I believe it does, we simply want to educate the stakeholders and wonder together with the help of good research and good expertise about what those risks are so we can help telecommunicators manage them by the way we design next generation 911 technology and operating procedures and how we put a filter, so to speak, on the fire hose of real-time video and other next-gen technologies. Gotcha. So I know you have a family connection to the field, but I'm wondering what else motivates you to help these people? (laughs) Okay, so now we're, we're drilling down a little bit. My father was born on March 9th. He, he passed six years ago. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, he's very much alive within me. My dad raised me to be concerned about those who are at the greatest risk and who are disenfranchised. He was a history teacher and educator and a, and a writer, uh, and he was a, really a student of 
culture, uh, as you yourself as a sociologist. Right, right. I have always had a deep concern for populations who are under-regarded, where their value is under-respected. And from the first sit-along I did in 1985 with my sister, I realized people who do this job are, you know, the secretaries are wonderful. We need them. Operators are wonderful. We need them. But we have to be clear here. The work of the telecommunicator is far more stressful and high risk emotionally, psychologically, and physiologically. And it takes so much intellect and emotional strength, resilience to do that job well. And so, frankly, I was drawn to them because I felt they deserved the best advocacy they could get to protect them physically and emotionally, psychologically, while they take care of everybody else. It triggered the part of me, Josh, that my father <laughs> worked to inculcate, and that is life is to be lived, you know, to invest in the life of other people who are deserving. And I felt like this was really a high-risk, underserved, under-recognized population that we all depend on. That's an excellent answer. Thank you. <laughs> Is there any special training or certifications required to become a, a 911 dispatcher? Uh, when my sister started, there was no training identified. They thought anybody could sit behind a desk and answer a phone. Now in 2016, we're on the verge of approving national training guidelines an effort that's being orchestrated by the 911 office uh, within the National Highway Transportation Safety uh, Authority. So right now we don't have official training standards nationwide, but there are a number of states who have been leaders in establishing state standards that are established by the legislature with flowing funds to make sure that training is provided. Michigan happens to be, my home state, happens to be one of the leading states where they've defined the different areas in which telecommunicators must be trained. Now, what can listeners do to help either the people that you serve or maybe help you in the work that you're doing? Well, so first, the public, if they're, if they're really motivated, they will Google to find the non-emergency line for their county or their city 911 center. So they can Google the name of their city or the name of their county 911 and then Look for the number that's a non-emergency line number. Call that number and tell a dispatcher they're grateful for the work they do. Direct appreciation. We have a major problem in the, in the 911 industry with retaining these people because it's so hard to, to keep them because the job is so stressful. But also it's hard to find people to do this. What they found in a major study was that a key factor is they're not appreciated enough, they're not affirmed enough. So number one, the public can go direct and thank our telecommunicators. The public can go online. They could email me. It's 911wellnessatlive.com and express their appreciation to 911. They could tell their stories about how 911 was helpful. But then let's be clear. You can't do the kind of work that needs to be done to advocate to protect these very first responders in 911 through a casual volunteer effort. The 911 Wellness Foundation is in place we have the expertise, we have the people who are willing to do all they can on a volunteer basis to support research, education, policy, and intervention. But we need funding to get these things done for telecommunicators. We need funding through the Wellness Foundation. Where can we follow you and the 911 Wellness Foundation online? And where can we donate? Yeah, a couple different ways. One, they can visit our website at 911wellness.com. 
And then there is a public Facebook page, which is in 911 Wellness Foundation. So get on Facebook and type in 911 Wellness Foundation. There's a public page, and they could possibly join our closed group if they're truly friends of 911, and it's not for the media. This is for friends of 911 who are grateful, who are supportive. They, If they're on Facebook, they can find the closed group for 911 Wellness Foundation and ask to join, and then we'll vet them. But we welcome everybody to go to the, the public Facebook page uh, and to go to the website. Okay. Is there anything I haven't asked that you'd like to talk about? Well, you haven't asked me what the meaning of life is yet. <laughs> oh, do you have an answer? <laughs> of course not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really appreciate your time, Jim. Uh, I really admire what your organization's doing, and I want more people to know about it. So thank you so much. You know what? I, I, I just, you know, I hope you'll be able to receive appreciation as, as much as as well as you give it, Josh, because you deserve really great commendation here uh, to take your time to create a venue where people might be able to find encouragement and hope. We really do need your work along with work like I'm trying to do to encourage our communities that, look, you know what? I tell dispatchers, you receive in, in any given year calls from only 2% of your community. But because they're all bad calls, you start to feel like everything out there is horrible, that it sucks, that it's just a dark world. All right. When the reality is 98% of the people are minding their own business, trying to do good, trying to take care of each other, love their families, serve their community. So we need to regain perspective. So I just want to thank you for helping us regain perspective, uh, that reality includes a lot of good as well. Yeah. And thank you for saying that. I really appreciate it. Okay. Well, that's all I have. <laughs> All right, man. You take good care tonight. Okay. Thanks, Jim. I really do appreciate it. Okay. You keep doing good work. You too. Thank you. All right. Peace, man. This is The Plural of You. I'm Josh Morgan, and the show's website is pluralofyou.org. That's all for now. Thank you for being kind today. Take care.